3: What is it, Madam Vice President?
2: I'm afraid President Trump is at death's door. We have to begin working on my speech where I take over.
3: The doctors say it's just really bad reflux.
2: Trust me, he won't make it through the night. Get used to saying President Wolf. Woo-hoo! I mean, after a period of national sorrow.
3: And you want me to make a speech about this?
2: Mm-hmm. And I want to change my title to The New Founding Mother of America will be a benevolent police state. One night a year, for 12 hours, all crime will be legal, and all police, fire, and medical services will be available. No rules except no bazookas or rocket launchers. And Ethan Hawke has to make out with me.
3: Uh, that's basically just the plot of those Purge movies.
2: Well, can I at least keep the Ethan Hawke part?
3: No, it's undignified.
2: All right, well, then bring me the head of Katniss Everdeen.
3: Uh, at the risk of offending you, You seem totally unprepared to take on the job of president. You've made no attempt to master policy, and your head is full of nonsense from pop culture.
2: This is because I'm a woman, right? President Trump was never held to these standards. Let's listen to a show about year three of his first term, and now officially classified as a fish-faced enemy of the people, Colin McEnroe. What
4: are we doing here? Very good question. We're trying to imagine what America would be like in 2019 if Donald Trump were elected president. This is something people think about, people talk about. The Washington Post had an article about uh, Trump anxiety disorder. People go and see therapists because they are so worried about this. So we thought we would try to make it at least a little more concrete or at least have the kind of person who thinks about this kind of thing think about this kind of thing. Imagine the world in 2019 with Donald Trump as president entering the third year of his first term. Somebody on Facebook said to me that they weren't worried about the third year of his first term. They were worried about the ninth year of the Trump presidency, if you get the joke. Anyway, we're going to talk to a whole group of different experts, people coming at this from lots of different fields. For the most part, these people are going to have a somewhat negative attitude towards the notion of President Trump. But we do have a Trump supporter who can sketch out uh, a much more morning in America view of things. So buckle your seatbelts. And we're going to begin with John Max. He's the author of the book Monologue, uh, about his work as, uh, as a writer of late night comedy monologues. So John Max, in general, obviously, late night comedy really does mind the presidency, whoever the president is for comedy. So what's it going to be when Donald Trump is president, is it going to be possible to find a specific trait of his to lampoon, or is he already kind of pre lampooning himself?
1: I think with Trump, you know, fast forwarding to 2019, it's enough to make me want to get back into writing late night <laughs> comedy full time. And, and the reason is this you know, with Clinton, you had a multi layered character. But he didn't really say stupid things. Mm-hmm. With President Bush, you kind of had, in many ways, a one-dimensional character, but sometimes said things awkwardly. With Trump, you've got both. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got somebody who's got a lot of layers and a lot of different dimensions of personalities to make fun of, and at the same time, he is saying something outrageous every day. The challenge for a comedy writer is going to be how do you how do you put the funny on the funny just the statement in of itself it's going to be funny.
4: The other problem is, that I would imagine anyway, is that there has to be some kind of implicit resistance to whatever comic trope you're applying. In other words, President Clinton did not uh, in any way sort of come forward and say, you know, I really do have sex with too many women, and I probably eat too many french fries, too. And and, and President Bush didn't ever really come forward and say, you know, we really get down to it. I'm not that smart. Uh, he might make little jokes about it, but that wasn't really his position about himself or the position of his handler But Trump seems to engage so much and so wholeheartedly in who he is without a lot of pretensions or serious resistance to... I mean, getting him to go on Saturday Night Live was a really easy thing, I think.
1: Yeah, it's... I mean, he will be... You know, the competition, and and again, the the line will be, he will be racing to do something funny inadvertently, you know, while you're trying to purposely do it. And so it's almost going to be a race. The other thing with Trump, what I found is... That the minute you try to do, you know, with stuff I'm writing now, the minute you try to do a joke or something, 15 minutes later it's old because he's done something else. There's nothing with staying power. And that might, actually, in this world of comedy, might work better. But it will be, like I said, you know, when he says he's going to create 10 million new jobs, those are all late night writers. Those are the jobs he's
4: created. <laughs> Well, now, the other way to look at this is, I mean, members of the press even talk about, you know, being in rooms full of his supporters where they actually feel a little bit of danger. And sometimes even he seems to be stirring up the crowd against journalists. He clearly, you know, he he may seem like he's a good sport about going along with jokes. But there's another way in which he's he angrily resists characterizations. I don't know. Have comedy writers ever felt in danger in this country? Or is it sort of is the court jester for Lear still kind? of of the safest place to be if you're in lear's court
1: uh well you know i'll find out after i'm audited by the IRS. but you know i'll let you know this could be the first time the secret service has to protect the public from the president versus the other way i mean they'll be wrestling the president to the ground to keep him from attacking people (laughs) you know i honestly think that when when, when you're a comedy writer and and that's what you do when you tend to be in political it's not that you're you're fearless because i certainly have, you know, like million fears. But you you enter it and you do it because you're a bit of an anarchist, Mm -hmm. because whoever the king, you want to take the king on. And it doesn't matter who it is.
4: That was John Max, who has background as both a comedy late night monologue writer and a political speech writer. Let's hear from someone else.
3: You know, President Trump here in 2019 is still using the, the same as or theory of truth that he's used when he ran for president, which is Uh, What's true is what the loudest voice in the room has to say. Mm -hmm. And he always thinks of himself as the loudest voice in the room. And now, of course, that he's president. That is many, many ways
4: exactly right. You're listening to Michael Lynch, a professor of philosophy at UConn and the author of The Internet of Us, Knowing More and Understanding Less in the Age of Big Data.
3: So I think that one of the things that that President Trump is going to continue to be particularly good at and concerned with is controlling the flow of information. Mm -hmm. Trump, the candidate, was excellent at dispensing all sorts of information. Most of it was really bad, false, (laughs) unjustified information. But nonetheless, he was really good at distributing it. Mm. And
4: he's now, with the force of the federal government behind him, he's even better at it. So we talk about net neutrality, and when we talk about it now, we're talking about basically everybody being on more or less the same footing on the internet and, and companies not being able to buy their way into access lanes on the internet where their information moves better or faster, those kinds of things, that it is this flat democratic space. That's what we mean by net neutrality now. Now, what we don't anticipate so much is the notion that when we got on the internet, we couldn't go anywhere we want. Right now, we can go anywhere if we get the passwords or whatever we need. We can essentially travel as we do on the interstate highway system, anywhere we want to go, I would imagine that might be something that a person very concerned with the flow of information might want to cheat. How changeable is that? It's incredibly changeable. I mean, one of the things that we know now is
3: that certain governments have been very good at blocking out certain parts of the internet. China, of course, is a very famous example of this, but not the only example. Uh, so the, t- the technology definitely exists to shut down parts of the Internet, to control people's access to Internet, even on, in local ways. There, there you can shut down part of the grid or access to, to parts of the grid right now. We don't do that in this country but in 2016, but in 2019, if President Trump is around, I foresee somebody who really wants to control information using those tools.
4: So I want to just talk about how we evaluate information, how we have historically, and how we do so now in 2019. So during the administration of George W. Bush, I mean, we did wind up in a war in Iraq where we were acting on intelligence that really wasn't all that actionable. The version of reality, the version of empirical truth has been revised a couple of times. And there was the famous quote that we think came from Karl Rove talking to, I think, the writer Ron Suskin. He said, you know, you're still operating back in the reality based community, as though there were some new kind of community. But we moved on to the Obama years where, for example, when Obama President Obama said something that wasn't true, he was punished for it. I mean, when he said, if you have a regular doctor, you're not going to lose that doctor. Nobody's going to lose their doctor. If he said things about the Affordable Care Act that weren't true, those things were detected, noted. He was I think punished is a fair thing to say. In other words, there's there's some kind of sanction that falls down on you if you're a leader and you say something that's not true. It seems as though President Trump is hitting off a different set of tees. So if he comes on television and says, you know what, Iran has started their nuclear program back up. They're in violation of this deal, which I never liked anyway. We're going to do something. Here's what we're going to do. How does that all get evaluated? I think first we need to just note the context here, Colin, that
3: right now in 2016, there are already figures uh, internationally and in in some senses you already note it nationally who are willing to say false things and stand by them simply because they think they can get away with it and in many ways they can. I mean we might also note that in the Soviet Union for example classically people like Stalin famously would say blatantly false things that labor camps didn't exist and when Solzhenitsyn's work came out it was all denied as not true. Now the Thing is, is if you're willing to say those things and stand by them and continue to march the power of the state in the direction of what you you are saying is true, after a certain point, people will begin to question their own judgment on this. If the president and certain arm, arms of the government are saying that, for example, Iraq has weapons of mass destruction, after a while, people start believing it. Again, the person with the loudest voice in the room doesn't necessarily speak the truth, but it's often the case that they are the person that's heard. And what if the only thing you're hearing is something that's false, you might start thinking that what's false is true and what's true is false.
4: Right. One of the things that – or among the things that we know, and some of these are in fact chronicled in your book, The Internet of Us knowing more and understanding less in the age of big data is that first of all it's often difficult to correct misimpressions. So if people believe that Iraq had some kind of role in 9-11 and you present them with a lot of data and verifiable documentary evidence that that's not the case, it may in fact deepen their impression that this was true in the first place. They won't necessarily remember the contradicting evidence. What they'll remember is that they had another conversation about this uh, and it just seems to gel or solidify or freeze more solidly in their minds. So that's an argument for the notion that President Trump doesn't represent this gigantic sea change in terms of how we evaluate in, in, information. He's more a product of a previous sea change or a, uh, a product of, of an earlier process where we began to think about information differently. I think that's
3: right, because we can say that right now we are living in that sea change. We're, we're going through it right now. And, and in fact, it, since we've already come out the other side right now in 2016, and Trump is the creature that has emerged from that black lagoon, <laughs> to follow through on the aquatic metaphor about a little bit too far. But I want to just pull out some of the things that you were just talking there about there, because I think they really make a lot of sense and are important one of the things that we know about our life now our digital life is that we can find confirmation for whatever we think on the internet and so if you tell me something that's counter to my view i can go find somebody else on the internet that will confirm my view and then the question becomes well who do i believe who do i believe now there are i think ways, obviously, to figure out what sort of sort of sites are reliable and what are trustworthy. But what often happens is that people are so sort of convinced by the mere availability of this information, the mere availability of it for them speaks of truth. And there's something to that. If you compare Googling to something like perception, you'll see what I mean. By We used to say seeing is believing, right? Now Googling is believing. It's the sort of default go-to thing. Mm -hmm. And just like we know that our senses can deceive us, right? There can be illusions and so forth. We know that. But still we have to go rely on what we have that's immediately available to us for forming our beliefs, and that's our senses. So we trust our senses most of the time. Same with Google. And that mere fact that we're already experiencing right now is the sort of fact that can lead people to start to think that counter-information, things that are against their view can be discounted because, after all,
4: their view is out there too. So if it's 2019 and President Trump comes on television from the Oval Office and says uh, Iran has restarted their nuclear weapons program, um, we're going to have to act preemptively, chances are we're not going to stop them. Chances are that's correct. I've been you know,
3: thinking about, just as we've been speaking about the sort of nightmare scenario. I mean, I think in an nitty-gritty way, I think you could you could see – certain perhaps top i 'd like to hope that certain top generals certain leaders of certain security parts of the security state might might resign or might say that they won 't do that sort of thing, but you know here 's the thing about big institutions there 's always somebody right behind them <laughs> who's a, who would like that bigger job and right. will step up and you know
5: hand over the launch codes. I mean, it's not surprising that he um, is sort of polite to Vladimir Putin. They're both in the same style. They're both pretending to be strong men.
4: That's the futurist and ethicist Wendell Wallach.
5: They're both characters who are not likely to be losers, and they might turn us all into losers before they either of them would accept that role. Even now, when we see Iran actually electing a more moderate government than we have seen in decades, I don't think it will be possible for Trump or any Republican candidate, for that matter, after all of their flagellating Obama for the treaty that he that he did create to relate to Iran as somebody who can possibly mollify so they may exacerbate something or even bomb Iran or drop even conceivably a bombs mm-hmm. on Iran to stop them to from developing nuclear weapons that do or do not exist just to again demonstrate the strongman rule.
4: Wendell, one thing that you like to think about is warfare and weaponry. Well, maybe you don't like to think about it, but you do think about it. We already have drones. Drones have become uh, a part of the way we wage war against our enemies. But drones are operated by someone. They don't do anything until that someone sitting at a console somewhere tells the drone to do what it does. The next generation, obviously, is lethal autonomous weaponry. That would be a kind of weapon, whether it was a drone or some kind of robot soldier Uh, a, a weapon that could make its own decision to fire and possibly kill. In a Trump administration, that would be kind of an inexpensive way to wage war. Tell us your concerns. Yes,
5: I am particularly concerned about the move toward lethal autonomous weaponry, and I can't see any way, shape, or form in which Donald Trump is likely to embrace a ban on anything that he believes we could demonstrate technological superiority in. So I don't think the nuances of why lethal autonomous weapons which seem to have some benefits and might be able to save some of the lives of our troops. We could sacrifice robots rather than the lives of our troops, but I think increasingly people are beginning to recognize that the short-term benefits of them can be far outweighed by the risks, such as starting new unintended Wars, but I don't think nuances like that are likely to enter into Donald Trump's vocabulary, or even if he has advisors who are telling him that he may not hear them. He may have already reacted in a way where he thinks he has to follow up on whatever boastrous policy he has taken. So I would suspect he would not be in favor of anything that would limit the development of,
4: of new arms, presuming he doesn't have a deep-seated terminate our fear. And it would seem as though it really does represent you should pardon the expression, kind of a sweet spot for somebody like Donald Trump who sees the world in terms terms of enemies. He thinks China is our very big enemy. He thinks Iran is our big enemy. He's obviously very worried about ISIS and talks about it all the time. So we've got enemies. And he's also been very clear about the fact that, like a lot of Americans, he objects to the amount of blood and treasure that was poured into previous invasions. He doesn't think the war in Iraq really was a a great idea. That money, he's said in the past, uh, could have been used in lots of other ways. Well, this is kind of warfare on the the cheap that we're talking about right now
5: exactly and that's the that's the notion that this kind of weaponry the attractiveness of it is is that you can go to war with the illusion that you won't sacrifice your own troops and that, in a certain sense, takes out all the virtue that used to exist in warfare, that you basically had soldiers out there who were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for for values such as freedom or equality. That would not be there anymore, and therefore that would be particularly attractive to somebody like Donald Trump. But I also don't know how he's going to handle China in the sense that he's got major investments and major agreements with China. And uh, we are heavily dependent upon them economically. And his strong man image is going to depend very much on his ability to maintain a healthy economy. Most analysts presume that the stock market will dive within a thousand points or so if he is elected. And that's largely because of the uncertainty a personality like him will create. He's large, very likely to put the whole world on constant edge about what he might do next. And that raises serious questions about whether he can precipitate the kind of economic prosperity that he's promising, and particularly unlikely if he's going to raise the
4: enmity of, uh, of China. We're imagining the world in 2019 when Donald Trump has been president for two years. I promise not all of our scenarios will be as bleak as the ones you've heard. I swear there's something positive coming up pretty soon on the show. Every time. we're back This is a speculative show. It's about something that hasn't happened yet, a Donald Trump presidency. And we're asking people to imagine the world in 2019, where he's been president for two years, starting his third term. Um, Many of the people that we've spoken to about this have a rather bleak outlook about this all. But I've also spoken to people who are very hopeful uh, about the idea of a Trump presidency. I absolutely wanted you to hear from one of them. We're talking to a woman named Donna. She's not entirely comfortable using her last name because— She's in Connecticut, where not everybody is all that sympathetic to her views. But I'm asking Donna to tell us, first of all, a little bit about a trip she took that made her think about what needs to be done in the present.
6: March 2015, we took the trip out to Colorado and drove around Colorado in that area. May, we were out in California. July, we were down in Tennessee. And we've, of course, spent a lot of time in upper New York State, in Vermont. Also, we were down in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I think that was in September. So we've had a chance this year to get off of the highway, get away from the cities, and go into some of these towns that are very rural towns with small populations.
4: And so what are you seeing there? You're seeing things there, I know from our prior talks, you're seeing things there that alarm you.
6: They're extremely alarming. What we are seeing is a lot of poverty in those areas. A lot of the areas once had manufacturing in them, the the manufacturing facilities have closed. As a result of that, people don't have jobs to go to right in that area that aren't in retail such as working at Walmart or Lowe's or the, the Shake and Burger place. So they don't have a lot of an opportunity to make a wage that can support a family.
4: So that's how things look in 2015. So imagine that it is 2019 and Donald Trump has been president for two years. He's had a pretty good chance to begin to get under the hood and see what the problems are. He's heading into year three. And then take us back to one of those towns in upstate New York or central Pennsylvania or Colorado. What is it that you think or hope you'd see in 2019?
6: Well, I think that one of the most important things that Donald Trump is addressing and that he is speaking up about is the problem that we have that we need more jobs in this country relating to manufacturing. Not everybody in this country is equipped to go to college nor do they want to go to college. What he is going to do from reading his policies, and this would make good sense, is he is going to offer some of these companies that have hordes his of money offshore. He is going to offer them tax breaks To bring their money back into the United States at a lower rate than they would be able to bring it back. Now, with the agreement that they put it into rebuilding manufacturing plants and start to hire American workers, you know, if you look at, everybody in the United States has a cell phone. Mm -hmm. Do you know how many cell phones are made in the United States?
4: Somewhere in the neighborhood of zero, I would assume.
6: Zero. You know, a cell phone's a small thing, easy to set up an assembly to make the cell phones. You know, you have huge companies, technology companies that make computers and make software. They're not making any of it in this country, yet all of our federal money is being spent on these computers for schools, I'll specifically say. But none of them are being made here, but we're buying them. So I think he's going to be kind of tough with some of these companies and say, hey, look, you need to bring some of that manufacturing back into our country. And I think what we're going to see is some of these small towns will start to get manufacturing back into them so that people can have a job to go to and have a income that can support a family.
4: So among the people who are kind of afraid uh, of what you're describing are the people that we sort of collectively and imprecisely describe as Wall Street, right? They're mounting a pretty tremendous effort against Donald Trump. And, And their concerns seem to be that, first of all, the mass deportation of a lot of illegal aliens is something the economy couldn't easily absorb as a single blow. And that trade wars can become unstable and actually injure to the economy, so suddenly disruptive to the economy that it's, it's not prepared for it.
6: You know, let's go back to a long time ago. You know, the neoliberal globalization and these free trade agreements, they were put into place to reduce poverty around the world. And, and they've worked. We have seen the largest reduction of human poverty ever. If we go just saying, OK, we are not trading with you anymore. We are going to go right back to creating poverty in other countries. So this has to be a a little bit of give and a little bit of take. I don't think that Donald Trump is going to go into office tomorrow and if he should win and pull the rug out from everybody because he understands that you, you can't do that. You need support of your senators and your congressmen, your governors, you need a lot of people to be in on this to make it happen.
4: But that raises the question how much Donald Trump or anybody else can do as president. Let's go back to Wendell Wallach for a second. Wendell, how big a difference does a president make with all the kinds of things that at least you tend to think about and worry about? In other words, how much control or influence does a president have? Are there checks and balances within the world of at least technology? I mean, how many things can a president change on his own?
5: Well, that's really a great question, Colin. And I think in in most situations— the president has much less influence than we would like to think a president has. And that's perhaps less influence in terms of – in a positive way. Though I think presidents, far-sighted presidents can shape the development of technology and can shape the development of humanity over time. So it's particularly helpful when you have a president around for eight years who sort of understands the way the game gets played. The difficulty with a personality like Donald Trump in this situation is that he's so reactive. He's so so quick to to want to fend off every slight. He's so quick to to make comments straight from the hip, and that's part of what makes him so entertaining and perhaps one of the reasons why he's attractive in this world of politicians who are constantly biting their tongue and saying things we know they could never believe in good faith but it also means he's going to be making commitments that will be very hard for him to step back from. So I suspect he will have a lot of really smart people around him who will know what the presidential thing to do, what the appropriate thing to do. But but the greater difficulty is, will he have committed himself? And is he a man enough to say that he's ever wrong? There's been no evidence in this campaign that he's admitted to, to being wrong. There's some situations where he has stepped back from truly outrageous things he says one day when somebody points out to him why that's an unacceptable position. But I think the biggest concern is that he is so reactive. He is somebody who who has to win at all costs, cannot admit his failures, and therefore he will commit us to policies that are poorly thought out, that won't be determinative in all spheres, but nevertheless can upset the apple cart in ways that will either upset the economy or perhaps taking some dramatic action that would violate international law or, or really set the world against the United States.
4: And on that cheerful note, we thought, for that matter, who really can control the Donald? Imagine that he is, instead of the Donald, he's DOTUS, he's Donald of the United States. Would it be possible to tell President Donald Trump what to do and what to say? Let's say you were his speechwriter. Let's say you were John Max, his speechwriter. Hey, John, could you tell Donald Trump what to say if he were president?
1: The first thing I would do is say, look, it's the old let Reagan be Reagan, you let Donald be Donald. I think you don't give him, you know, I think giving him a written speech would be a mistake. I, you know, for most speeches, I'm going to put the State of the Union apart for a second. Mm-hmm. For most speeches, what you would do is I would just give him, I would just give him his three message points. Mm-hmm. I'd say, you know, rather than just ramble, just try to say three, these three message points. So you look at Clinton in 1992. Everything that Bill Clinton did was always about, it's the economy stupid, we need to have health care reform and change versus more of the same. So any time that Bill Clinton would, would make a point, it would relate to one of those three key parts of the message triangle. And that's what I would try to do. I, I don't think he can really rein Donald in, but I think maybe if you give him a wide corral like that and say try to stay to that, that would help. A state of the union would be totally different. And I think what you would have to differentiate is this is a guy who will give – I mean, what he's he speaks to the press more on an average day than I think Hillary has in the past 100 days. So you let him go free range at the news conferences to let Donald be Donald. And I think you limit his formal speeches. You would try to limit it to the big ones, to the State of the Union, to addressing the nation. And that's where you have to go on teleprompter. And you just would have to.
4: But I I wonder about that, too. I wonder how possible it is. I mean, we haven't. I don't think we've really had a president who is so capable of going veering off in some really odd direction. I mean, this is a man who 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 talks about how we'd like to punch somebody in the face. He's somebody who will say almost anything about anybody. The way he's described uh, Mexican uh, immigrants crossing the border uh, is pretty vivid. And, And it's one thing to be a candidate doing this. And I still think we're we feel we're all watching a kind of candidate we've never seen before. But it's another thing. I mean, you have to be presidential. Right. I mean. Just so much of what he says seems not presidential. Wouldn't it be necessary to get a Carville and Begala equivalent to to just? Get, get him to stop doing a lot of that stuff
1: right the, the, the problem you have is this almost all candidates it's like again if you're in a in the republican this is in the past now let me make that clear mm-hmm. in the past in the republican party you know primary you'd move to the right and then you would move to the center for the general mm-hmm. In the democrat you'd move to the left in the primaries then you move to the center for the general that was a standard role and then once you became president you know you acted presidential the office itself the power the majesty the being in the white house the sense of responsibility would take people even who didn't have the the necessarily the greatest self-control and made them act presidential I'm um, my great fear you know is that if you had a president trump that he would say look this i won the presidency by being you know this way. Mm-hmm. Why would I change? Mm-hmm. I don't think that he, I think he's so narcissistic that I think it'd be very hard for him to make that course correction. So I talked to, I think nine different therapists, and they all said the same thing. They all said he's a remarkably good illustration of the narcissistic personality disorder.
4: That's the investigative humorist Henry Alford. He wrote a psychological profile of Trump for Vanity Fair called, Is Donald Trump Actually a Narcissist?
1: The three traits are grandiosity, a lack of empathy, and an expectation that others will recognize your superiority.
4: Hard, hard to argue there. And hard
1: to argue. Yeah. One therapist even said that he's archiving video clips because there is no better example of narcissism.
4: So that when uh, this particular therapist teaches narcissistic personality disorder, he or she can just say, roll them. Exactly. <laughs> okay. We'll take a break. We'll come back with some more serious considerations after this.
2: Today's show was produced by Jonathan McNichol and me, Kayone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Eric Trump. For show pages, articles, and the secret plan to change here and now to Trump and Trump, go to our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, Batman. And now back to Colin.
4: One thing we wanted to do was talk to somebody whose imagination gets a lot of exercise because we're really asking people to put themselves into a situation that's speculative, that doesn't exist. And so these days, science fiction is often even called speculative fiction. Elizabeth Baer is with us, a two-time Hugo Award-winning author, mostly of speculative fiction. She is uh, Her most recent novel, Karen, Memory, is out in paperback right now. So we asked you to think about this a little bit as uh, as somebody who who writes and who who thinks about a situation that doesn't exist. So it's 2019, not that speculative, not that far away, but something has happened that we don't know will happen, and that is that Donald Trump is president. It's 2019; he enters his third year. What does the writer in you see? What do, what do you what do you get interested in?
0: Okay, my serious answer is I see a Democratic landslide in Congress at that point. I think that. In general, what happens when a politician who is noted for being extremely visionary in whatever direction that person may want to to push society gets elected, begins attempting to make social progress, whether that's conservative or progressive social progress, the next thing that happens is a whole bunch of people turn out in the polls. and elect a bunch of Congress critters who stand in direct opposition to whatever that person wants to do. So I I sense gridlock. But sometimes gridlock is a good thing. It tends to to slow social change down to the rate at which most people are comfortable with. Mm. And – I do think that a lot of the to, – to be really serious for a moment, I do think that a lot of the current support for some very reactionary politicians has to do with people who have historically had a lot of social power in the US feeling like other people are also starting to have social power and assuming that that means that uh, they will be treated the way they treated everybody else.
4: So gridlock is a very – you know, a very arguable and very plausible outcome from all this. It, Probably is the worst Elizabeth Baer novel ever. We wanna...
0: <laughs> Gridlock. Yeah. If I were if I were writing this as a uh, as an actual novel and looking for the maximum conflict and the testing to destruction, it would involve oh armed revolution and violent voter suppression and um, people taking to the streets and some, something closer to the Orange Revolution in Ukraine about a decade ago. You know, you'd you'd want you want some violence, you want some angry people shouting and waving placards and tearing their shirts off that's That's where you get your drama,
4: and you also want some palace intrigue and I absolutely see, it seems to me that I mean not to wish anybody any ill, but donald trump's a sixty nine year old man taking over a very stressful job mm-hmm. um, You know if I were a novelist looking at this, one thing that would recur to me is maybe by the end of two or three years he's not the president, and maybe some maybe either his departure has been arranged by somebody else i claudius style <laughs> or or well, you know what they you know. Yeah, you know what ahead.
0: they used to call arsenic? Inheritance powder. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> so And so that, if you're a novelist, gets you thinking, well, so there's Donald Trump, who's a little bit of a cult of personality. But you'd really want to think about it. Well, oh, who, who you can't be president all by yourself. You have to bring all kinds of other people in there. So who are those people?
0: Well, yeah. even as a chief executive, he's going to surround himself with yes men. It, it's his style. Yes men, yes women, yes androids. It's 2019. We might have androids.
4: <laughs> OK, now. <laughs>
0: gold-plated, now gold-plated yes, androids. Yes,
4: why deal with the complexities of human beings when you could have androids in your cabinet or at least, you know, puttering around those little narrow corridors in the White House to have at least a, a few? Uh,
0: well, I think ideally what, what Trump would do is he would clone himself and populate his entire cabinet with with gold-plated Trump clones.
4: <laughs> All right, that's,
0: his, that's where we get into the farce. If I'm writing a farce, that's the way I go.
4: So, I mean, just to sort of round this out, I mean, it is interesting to me, and this may say a lot about how the fiction writer's mind works, is that, you know, your first thought was to go to the more safe and stable and static thing. Mm-hmm. That this is just another political cycle, basically, and it'll be followed by another political cycle. And maybe that's because... For a fiction writer, once you start once you did start imagining <laughs> <laughs> it got pretty baroque. I'm pretty fast.
0: Line, I'm lining people up against cinder block walls yeah. within five yeah five iterations. Out behind the chemical sheds.
4: Okay, well, I did ask her to use her uh, imagination. Uh, that was Elizabeth Baer. but on a more serious note, we wanted to talk to someone from the Muslim community. M. Saud Anwar is the former mayor of uh, South Windsor, Connecticut. He's also a physician who specializes in lung diseases and critical care medicine. I began by asking him, just what do Muslims talk about when they talk about Trump? Uh, are they worried about the kinds of things that he describes?
7: It's it's a uh, it's a source of concern to people. He's goes against the, the actual the DNA of our, our, our country um, mm-hmm. because uh, it, the seal of uh, United States talks about uh, us being of many one, mm-hmm. pluribus unum. Mm-hmm. And, and he's actually trying to take us apart and rather than make us into one, he's actually separating us out and, and, and identifying groups that he wants to carve out and not be part of that one. And, and within the community there is a fear and anxiety. If if uh, somebody uh, with that mindset becomes in a position of responsibility, what would happen to the communities which uh, he is uh, obviously targeting?
4: All right. As unpleasant as that might be, let's play it out a little bit. Uh, imagine that it is 2019. He's been president for a couple of years based on what he said he's going to do and also maybe what at 2 o'clock in the morning you wake up wondering if he's going to do. I mean, what are you picturing? When, you, when your anxieties take an actual shape, what shape do they take?
7: Well, um, first of all, I I will speak about the community separately from me. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm an American. This is my country. This is my home. And that's a similar thing with every American and and, uh, Americans who are uh, of Muslim faith. So nobody can do anything to the American community and people. However, if uh, he is going to try to target a single community and... and, uh, try and, and paint them with, with the broad brush. It's going to be the 1960s era all over again, where it is going to be organized uh, hatred, organized uh, discrimination, and uh, some policies which would uh, marginalize uh, minority communities. So again, what that would do is is uh, going to be unhealthy. It's almost like going back in time and, and doing things which have been failed uh, policies and failed views.
4: When we say things, doing things, registration of all Muslims, is that something you picture? Uh,
7: Well, uh, if if, uh, we believe what uh, Trump has said, that is something that we would be concerned about, that uh, is he going to start to create similar, the the Star of David, anytime you think about that, it it gives you goosebumps to think that uh, we can go back to an era where People in the historical past have done such things to the Jewish community. Can, God forbid, somebody do that to any other community?
4: Obviously, his immigration policies towards Muslims would be different from his general immigration policies, if we believe what he says, right?
7: Well, the reality is, uh, I mean, if you look at no country is isolated anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are in a globalized world. One out of every fourth person in the world is a Muslim. It is a huge market as well, but it's also a huge uh, area of where there's economic opportunities within our own fabric in our society, people of Muslim background are in every aspect of our society. And our demographics of our country are changing, so we will depend on immigration to sustain ourselves and remain competitive in the world. So if his policies truly are what he's saying, this is going to be a very negative economic downturn for us as a society, as a country. So leaving even the the ethical and moral argument out of the picture, it is going to be a disaster economically if, if he actually anticipates to pursue what he's saying. Now, I apologize for in advance for kind of ratcheting up whatever your anxiety
4: level would be or anybody else's anxiety level would be. But the reality is we're having a conversation today and Brussels just happened. Yes. Um, and if I were a Muslim, or and as a person who sympathizes with my Muslim brothers and sisters, right. my concern is or would be in a Trump presidency that everything like this is an occasion for a revisiting uh, of this conversation and a revisiting of these values. If you have a president who is sort of uh, Islamophobic to begin with, anytime something like this happens, it's an opportunity for him to give another speech and maybe to propose drip, 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 death by small cuts, death by small cuts, other measures that, in his view, attempt to rein in what he perceives as a generalized threat. It's got to be something you think about.
7: Colin, here's here's the reality. His proposals are totally counter to what he's trying to solve and, and, and trying to address. I'm right in the midst of the, this situation myself. I travel the world. I actually interact with people in many parts of the world. In, in Muslim-majority countries, I have an important uh, responsibility as an American Muslim to share the truth about America with the rest of the world. Just like bad people over here make news, bad people from here make news over there too. And, mm-hmm. and as a result, when we are trying to help people recognize what the American values are, when they hear what Trump has to say, all the, the indices are suggesting that uh, he's helping recruitment uh, in al-Qaeda and ISIS. And, mm-hmm. and so if his policies, uh, what he's stating, they're going to actually make the extremist voice stronger in other parts of the world. If you really want to take care of this challenge of our era, of, of extremism within faith, and in, in, in this particular case of uh, people who claim to be Muslims, we will have to win it at, on moral grounds. And then, and that's what we'll have to do. Well, we're talking to Saud Anwar, a physician
4: who specializes in lung diseases and critical care medicine. But in addition to that, you are the former mayor of South Windsor. So having participated in the political process that way, one of the interesting questions is, in 2019, the third year of a Trump presidency, would your political path be the same? Uh, I guess by one argument, maybe uh, Connecticut in South Windsor would be at pains at that point to assert itself as a tolerant place, a place that could very easily uh, elect a Muslim mayor. But the other possibility would be just sustained stigmatization by the president of the United States would make it difficult for a Muslim politician.
7: I, I trust the people in in my town, and I trust the people in the state of Connecticut. I, I strongly believe that uh, we have a value system which is based on acceptance and respect for other, and, and and if somebody within our society, even in the position of a big responsibility like a president, is going to have a blatant uh, bias against a people, I think the, the basic values that we have in, in Connecticut and in our society would actually counter that and would stand up to such uh, bigotry. Okay, so that got us thinking about how, in fact, people are evaluated in a society.
4: For the most part, although there have been some exceptions, for the most part, now we accord everybody equal what is called by philosophers epistemic equality, which means that their thoughts, their ideas, their brains are fully equal and worthy of participation in, de- in a democracy. Everybody gets to vote. Uh, everybody gets to serve on juries. Nobody is considered by virtue of who they are not worthy of, of having the kind of participation that the level of thought and ideas in our society. So we went back to philosopher Michael Lynch and and talked about that, particularly vis-a-vis Muslims with the possibility of, of things like registration out there. How does that affect our notion, our American notion of epistemic equality?
3: Trump is going to see voters as his customers. That's how he thinks about the world. And his customers are – are his loyal customers are the people who voted for him. And so he knows that he's going to have to make the customers happy when he steps into the White House. So even though he might you know realize quickly that certain parts of his immigration plan will be impractical, he will want to give them something. And that first thing might be if, for example, he proposes a more radical thing and it doesn't work out in Congress – We could easily see, and I think some of the right would definitely go along with this, a registration program for Muslim citizens, which would be the first step to much darker things.
4: Now, the much darker things might include the notion that Muslim citizens follow a different law, or they place a religious law on a higher plane than they do the laws of democracy. Maybe we do get into this whole question of epistemic equality there. So first of all, tell us what that means. Epistemic equality is,
3: you know, don't think it means, epistemic means having to do with knowledge. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean everybody knows the same things. Mm -hmm. What it means is that we all have the equal capacity to be treated as a knower. Mm -hmm. You earlier said that we all have that now. I'm not so sure that we do have that. We have it as an ideal now. Mm. I have it as an ideal. I think our legal system has it as an ideal, that every citizen counts equally as a knower, as somebody who's capable of giving testimony in court, and so forth, and things like that. I think in actual society, it often plays out just like income equality, right? Income equality is a sort of ideal, or at least something approximating that. But Obviously, we don't have that sort of equality either, even if you think of it in just in terms of people's having equal capacity to try to make a, a decent living for themselves, if not the same amount of money. So I think in the same case, in the same way, of course, we've also seen throughout the course of our history, people suffering from a lack of epistemic equality that has been enforced by the state. So... You know, in the 1850s, there's a famous case in the California Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court Justice Murray, who famously gives a case where he says, look, a black man, an African-American man can't be allowed to testify against a white man. Why? Mm -hmm. Because what he says in the the opinion, which can be read today, is that that's a slippery slope to treating black men as equal to white men. Mm -hmm. And of course... He's right because mm-hmm. if you do start treating people as equally capable of knowing things as yourself, as equally capable of getting at the truth, then that's that's a sign that you're treating them as a fellow human being. You're recognizing them. Is it possible that President Trump could start to take away those rights, that way of thinking about Muslims as fellow knowers? Yes, I'm afraid that could be possible based on what he said.
4: I want to ask you one last question, Michael Lynch, which is uh, you're a philosopher. And so uh, imagine you're on the campus of University of Connecticut, which looks pretty much the way that it does today, except that we have a bit of a security state, maybe rising a little bit, you know, 10 degrees every three months. So maybe there's some uniformed people walking around on the Yukon campus who didn't used to be there. Uh, but basically still, it's a public university. You're a philosopher. You don't like the way everything's going. A lot of it really does conflict with your your own ideas of justice and truth. So what do philosophers do in a state like that one, under a government like that one, where freedom seems maybe a little bit curtailed or a lot curtailed, and you're not happy with the way things are? What do philosophers do? The
3: same thing I hope that radio hosts do. Speak out, stand up, write what you think is true. Let's all hope that we have the courage to do that, should the nightmarish scenario that you are Having us imagine today come true. Well,
4: I'll send you a postcard from Paris, but good luck with that. <laughs> all right, uh, I, I, it sounds great to me. Trump as
3: president. Donald Trump for president.
2: In other news, President Trump has successfully shut down Planned Parenthood by turning it into a Trump property. Also, Trump has reaffirmed his opposition to gay marriage stating that marriage is between one very rich reality television star and his much younger Slovenian-American third wife.